The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, we're continuing in our study here in Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 7. This is kind of a two-part passage of Jesus' interaction with the uh, Pharisees and then the scribes who've come down from Jerusalem, kind of the watchdogs are coming to lay their hammer down on Jesus and his disciples because he's got authority issues. He's not following the tradition of the elders, which the word tradition, which we looked at last week, is like six times in the first 13 verses of why are your disciples not following the tradition of the elders? And Jesus, uh, as you recall, uh, turns it around and says that you're really the ones with the authority issue because your authority is, is not the word of God, but rather the traditions of men. And those traditions are causing two big problems we looked at last week. You're not loving God. You're now worshiping him with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So you're not loving God and you're not loving your neighbor. You're not loving your parents because you've got this thing called Corbin and you can say, well, that's just given to God, made an oath to it, and then you don't have to give your parents anything to help them. And in reality, in that culture, your 401k was what? It was your children. That was your investment program. So your 401k was how many children you had because that's who you leaned on. But now these children just said, sorry, parents, can't help you. So Jesus had some pretty hard things to say about that, but then he's going to take up this issue of being defiled because they think that the disciples and Jesus are defiled because they don't wash their hands before they eat. It had nothing to do with germs. It was really just the ceremonial cleansing that you were to be ceremonially clean before you went into the temple. And so now we've got to have a fence within a fence Now you can't be clean and eat unless you're ceremonially clean. And so now you've got to cleanse off your hands. And and so Jesus addresses that, and he called the people to him in verse 14, said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters, his heart, enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is a heavy word. I mean, Sunday school was heavy. For those that were in here, we were looking at the tragedy of addiction, and it was a very sobering chapter Um, in this book that we're reading, uh, not the way it's supposed to be. And this is a sobering word. If this was the only word that you had to leave today, you would be, there's not a whole lot of hope here. But I want to show you that there is. We just need to put some other light of some other passages around it, and there's a lot of light. But if you just had this, you're thinking, well, 
All right, you know, we've got, it's all about the arrows in direction, right? So the big words in this passage that we just read is the, obviously the word defiled occurs, what, uh, it's in verse 15, it's in verse, uh, and actually there's not a verse 16. This is where some people will like rail on the ESV, like they don't even have a verse 16 in the text. It just goes straight from 15 to 17. Which came first, the manuscripts or the numbers that later got added in centuries later? They got added in later. So then when they go back and they find the best manuscripts and realized, oh, 16 is something that really wasn't in the originals, then they took that out. So it, it's not like all of a sudden the ESV is just dropping verses, okay? So just, just an aside of it's humorous to see what some of the arguments people will make of the numbers came centuries later. So... And anyhow, but the word defiled is in verse 15, it's in verse 18, it's in verse 20, it's in verse 23. I mean, the word defile is the key word, right? But the other big word is the whole directional arrows, right? He, he says the word, there's nothing outside that, makes any, that defiles anybody, verse 15. And then he says it again in verse 18, that, that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him. So it's, it's not... Is it outside in or inside out is the question, right? Or how are, how are we, and, and Jesus is saying, actually, it's just the opposite. The problem is not a, uh, it's not an outside problem, it's an inside problem. It's an issue of the heart. And so you have this play on words here that goes back and forth of outside or in, but it's this word in or out, and from Greek, it's ace and ek. And that's where we get the term, have you ever heard the term, Eisegesis and exegesis, are you reading into the text, that's eisegesis, or are you reading out of the text, letting it explain for you, and preaching out of the text, that's exegesis. So one is out, one is in, and the problem here is the in problem is the problem, not the out problem, because the out problem of things like foods, Jesus is just plainly speaking, he says in verse 19, the things that you eat, they come into the stomach, verse 19, and literally, they go into the latrine. That's literally what he's saying. You, you go to the bathroom, it's eliminated. That's what he's saying, okay? So he's saying that's not the problem. The foods are, they go into the stomach, you know, but it, it's bypassing the heart. The problem is actually much deeper. And so what, the, the, the outline here is just real simple this morning. It's what doesn't defile, and then what does defile? So Jesus is obviously offering a, a correction, okay? And so he wants to make it very clear that food isn't what defiles you. It isn't these outward things, okay? And so then the other thing is that you think, well, if, if it's outward things that are making me um, defiled, then I can outwardly cleanse it and I'll be fine. And, and it's kind of like if, if any of you saw or had to read The Streetcar Named Desire, which is not the greatest play in the world. It's a Tennessee Williams play. But Blanche Dubois, if you remember this, do you, did you have to read this? She is constantly has a preoccupation with taking a bath because in her past life, she's really a tramp. And it's her way to soothe her nerves, but it's symbolic of she's trying to cleanse herself from her past sins. And there's a little Blanche Dubois in all of us that just wants to take a shower and think that's gonna fix the problem. And it's, but the outside is not going to fix it, right? 
So what Jesus is getting at here is not only does it not cleanse, it's not fixing the problem, but when you begin to teach this, you're actually part of the problem. You would be perpetuating and pushing precepts that are prevarications. You would be pushing lies. You'd be peddling lies. So when you teach that cleanliness is next to godliness, and if that's really what you think, like, what are you really teaching? That you are really thinking it's, it's an outside-in world. Whereas what, what Jesus is saying is there, there are external factors, okay? There are external things that, that play upon. I mean, our battle is threefold, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. But what Jesus is saying, our primary problem is our own hearts. It's an inside problem. So let's just try to flesh that out. Just, just apply this for a moment, okay? Because I hear this sometimes. Man, if we could just get out of Maryland, if we could just get out of Maryland and get to a good place to live, like, you know, down south where, where the laws are better, the taxes are better, life is better. If we could just get out of here because the out problem is where we live, if we could just get out of here, then life would be so much better, okay? I just talked to somebody this week actually from Texas saying he couldn't wait to get out of Texas, wants to come to Maryland. I said, man... I've never heard anybody that doesn't like Texas, you know? But he didn't like Texas. So, but, so if you think like the problem is external, and if you can just get externally escape, if we can just get out into the woods, move out of the city, get away from our problems, it's kind of like the early church father, Hilarion, that he was following Anthony, went out as a desert father, he gets all the way out into the, in the middle of nowhere, he's out in the desert, and he's saying that naked people were still there because the naked women were still in his head. He still had a sinful heart of fantasies that he was still thinking in his head. See, the problem is internal. It's not external. So don't think if you get out into the woods or you get away from Maryland, all your problems are going to go away. The externals are real. There are external sinful factors. I don't want to discount that and dismiss that altogether because the Bible does say things like bad company corrupts good character. True. He who walks with the wise grows wise, and a companion of fools suffers harm. True. And the very first thing the Proverbs warns about in Proverbs 1 is peer pressure, of throwing your lot with us. Let's commit this violent act together, and we'll get rich, we'll make a lot of money. That's the very first warning from Solomon to his son, is watch out for that. So externals are real. They can fuel internals. But the heat and the coal were already there. You just threw on the wood. But you can't say wood was the problem if there's a fire. There's already hot, fiery coals of which the wood was placed upon, but the heart is the ultimate problem. So when you're thinking this through, let's just follow the logic. The internet didn't create lust. Instagram didn't create coveting. Online betting didn't create greed. Unemployment checks didn't create sloth. Restaurants serving oversized portions didn't create gluttony. Video games didn't create violence. Somebody complimenting you didn't make you a proud person. Your sibling or your spouse is not the primary problem why you sin with your tongue. We sin because it comes out of our hearts. And so certainly the battle is threefold, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil loves to ramp up his reinforcements and weapons if you let the sun go down in your anger and you don't resist temptation, if you don't do that, the devil would love to come to your emotional rescue and be your knight in shining armor. 
as the Rolling Stones would sing about. He'll be your friend. He'll coddle you and he'll hold you and he'll help you nurse that grudge. But it's their fault. It's your fault. And we always want to point arrows outside of us. And Jesus is saying, no, no, bigger problem. Bigger problem. So who are we blaming this morning? Who do we blame for our sin? Do we blame our children? If they didn't act like this, I wouldn't have to raise my voice. If he would just help a little, I wouldn't get so angry at my spouse. Our upbringing, the way my parents spoke to one another, it was just so bad, and I guess the apples, they just don't fall far from the tree. And my job, if they would just pay me more, I wouldn't have to do shady things to sneak more money for myself. Or do we blame God? The woman you gave me, she gave to me, and I ate. Am I my brother's keeper? I thought that was your job. You're supposed to keep him. Who are we blaming? And what what we see here is Jesus is the only one that can fix the problem because the problem is so much deeper. You see, the problem is so deep, it's down into the very depths of our heart. And who knows our hearts? I mean, the chapter we just read this morning, it's like there are so many onion layers of our hearts. They are so slippery, so defiled, so deceitful. You can't judge yourself. How are you going to know? We, we, we were naturally going to skew things. I'm really not that bad. I'm really pretty good, you know. Who wants to say, you know, I'm terrible? And so Jesus actually lists 13 reasons why you need him this morning. He gives you 13. I mean, if you really want, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need him? What are the 13 reasons? Well, they start in verse 21. Reason number one, evil thoughts. Reason number two, sexual immorality. Reason three is theft. Reason four is murder. Reason five is adultery. Reason six is coveting. Reason seven, wickedness. And then deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Every single one of these, what he starts with is, is evil thoughts, okay? That's a summary. That's the umbrella of the next 12. So it's just all summed up that we have evil thoughts that come from an evil heart. And the heart is... is Different than we tend to describe it in our day. We think, oh, the evil, the, the thoughts is the mind and the heart is just the, the, the affections. They're really much more closely bottled together. The heart is the, the sum of those things. And so the, we have these evil thoughts and then he's gonna give six plural and six singular. So the six problems are porneia, Sexual immorality, it's just, it's just fornication, but it's the general term for all sexual immorality. That didn't come with the internet. It didn't come through magazines. It didn't come through Hugh Hefner. It came right here out of our hearts. That's where porneia comes from. And then the theft is this klepto word. We get kleptomaniac, you know, this, this thieving, this stealing. And then you have a murder, adultery, coveting, and wickedness, those are all plural. And then for specifics, he just cites six more singulars that come out of the hearts of deceiving, deceit, sensuality, envy, or literally evil eye, and the idea is that either we're, there's a stinginess, but then there's also this envy of other people. And then slander is this word, the word we get, the word blasphemy. And when we slander others, it's a certain type of blasphemy, but then obviously when we 
insult God or slander God. That's, the, that's a much worse blasphemy, but that's the word for slander. And then there's this pride or arrogance, and then just foolishness. How are, how are we, you know, is this, can this really be true about us? I mean, it's, our, our issues are big. Calvin describes it like this with the word foolish in describing our stupidity. He says, here's our stupidity. Our minds are dazzled with the glare of wealth, power, and honors that they can see no further. The heart also engrossed with, with avarice, which is just greedy for making money. The heart is engrossed with avarice, avarice, ambition, and lust, and it's weighed down and cannot rise above them. In short, the whole soul ensnared by the allurements of the flesh seeks its happiness on the earth. And Calvin just said, that's why we're fools. That's why we're foolish, because we can't see how much better God is than all of his gifts. So what Jesus is doing here is he's plumbing the depths of pessimism and so that he can give optimism about himself. You see, man's thinking he can just fix this. I can just baptize these things. I need to, you know, we talked about last week the word for washing, and these wash the cups, wash these different things, wash your hands. It was all these baptisms. And what Jesus is really getting at is you need a much deeper baptism than, than something external. You need a baptism of the heart. You need a change of heart. You see, what we see here is what man is by nature. And what we see what God can do and what Jesus does is only what grace alone can do. He can take one who is depraved like this and a sinner and have him be a forgiven sinner and a justified saint, an adopted child of God, an heir of God, and one who's changed kingdoms, one who's had a decisive break with sin, one who's now being conformed to the image of Jesus, but one who still wrestles greatly with the flesh, that there's a war going on, that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the flesh and the spirit against the flesh, and these are at odds with one another, and Paul's saying, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I end up doing, and I find this law at work that whenever I want to do good, evil's right there with me. I was just reading this week of a, maybe some of you saw this story, but there was a church administrator treasurer, and she stole about $600,000 from her church and school over the years. And what she was doing with the $600,000 was she was going on these elaborate vacations with her husband. And my first thought in reading this is just like, that is so selfish. That is so narcissistic. You know, here she is just taking this money. These people are giving to the school, paying for their kids, you know, their t- tuition to go to, you know, some Christian school, and they're, they're thinking they're tithing to the church. Meanwhile, the church treasure is often the, the, these elaborate, lush vacations, and the authorities say, we think she stole a lot more. But that's all we could get her for was the 594K. But they think she stole a lot more than that, okay, over the years. Now, here's the thing. How did did this start? And the answer is this. It started just with a little bit. It's just a little bit. It's just a little selfishness, just a little shading of the truth, just a little bit of money, just a little using of the company for personal benefits. 
That's where John Owen says, sin always aims at its utmost. Every time it rises up to temper and entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? Men may come to that, that sin may not be heard speaking a scandalous word in their hearts. That is provoked to any sin with scandal in its mouth, but yet yet... Every rise of lust, might it have its course, would come to the It is like the grave that is never satisfied. And so it, it starts small, but sin always wants more. And that's what happened with this woman. I'm sure just like Madoff, Madoff didn't plan on stealing billions and billions and billions of dollars or how much, he, you know, millions and millions or whatever it was. It started small, real small, but then it grew. And as it grew, it got worse. And we were reading this chapter this week, um, The Tragedy of Addiction. And the big, big book of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, says that addiction is cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient. That, that's the scariest term. Sin waits its opportunity. And it says, a victor over every ordinary attempt to conquer will be this addiction. It's a demon that rushes to fill vacuums, a dismissed shadow that keeps threatening to return. And so this is where Owen says, sin does not only abide in us, but it's still acting, still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are the most part deep when they're still. So you that think you're doing just great right now because everything's quiet, take heed to Owen. Because what Jesus is saying is diet can't fix it. Work can't fix it. Working out can't fix it. Yoga can't fix your heart. Hobbies can't fix your heart. Religion can't fix your heart. Other religions can't fix your heart. Disciplines can't fix it. The Pharisees couldn't fix it. The Sadducees couldn't fix it. Political parties can't fix it. Your parents can't fix it. Friends can't fix it. And most of all, you can't fix it. Why is that? The problem is greater than we ever imagined. Thomas Boston, in his classic quote of quotes, says this, The affections are corrupted. The unrenewed man's affections are wholly disordered and distempered. They are the unruly horse that either will not receive or violently runs away with the rider. So man's heart naturally is a mother of abominations. And then he quotes Mark 7, 21 and 22. For from within, in him, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. And in Matthew's account, in Matthew 15, by the way, he just lists them in order of the commandments. So it says, out of the heart of man will come murder, sixth commandment, then it'll say adultery, seventh commandment, theft, eighth commandment, ninth commandment will be lying, and then coveting. He just lists them in Matthew. He just, you know, what comes out of the, out of the heart of man is law-breaking. And what Boston is saying is the natural man's affections are wretchedly misplaced. He's a spiritual monster. His heart is where his feet should be, fixed on the earth. His heels are lifted up against heaven, 
which his heart should be set on. His face is toward hell, his back toward heaven, and therefore God calls him to turn. But he loves what what he should hate and hates what he should love. He joys in what he should mourn for and mourns for what he should rejoice in. He glories in his shame and is ashamed of his glory. He abhors what he should desire and desires what he should abhor. Everything's perverted by nature. What then's going to make us clean? What is going to actually baptize and make us clean? Because what Jesus is getting at is the bad news can actually be the good news. The good news is that Jesus has come. And Jesus has come, and so has the Holy Spirit. And God had made a promise long ago that even in the midst of our sin and our idolatry, God had promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Ezekiel 36, 25. And then he says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. That was a promise. Jesus comes to make us clean. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones has this story of, in his book or his biography, and he, he tells a story about when he was first preaching in Wales, and he, t- he says, let me tell one story to illustrate what I mean. He's talking about the power of God in the church. And he says, a woman who was a spiritist and even a medium, a paid medium employed by a spiritist society, she used to go to church. She used to go, I'm sorry, she used to go every Sunday evening to a spirit meeting and was paid three guineas for acting as a medium. Medium. This was during the 30s, 1930s, and there was quite a large sum of money for a lower class woman. She was ill one Sunday and couldn't go to her appointment, and she was sitting in her house, and she saw people passing by on their way to church where I happened to be ministering in South Wales. Something made her feel a desire to know what those people had, and so she desired to go to the service, and she did. She came afterwards until she died, and she became a very fine Christian. One day I asked her what she felt on that first visit. And this is what she said to me, and this is the point that he's illustrating. The moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a power. I was conscious of the same sort of power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings. But this one, there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. The clean power that cleanses you from your sin. And so Jesus comes to make us clean. And what he says he comes to make us clean from is the book of Hebrews actually says that he will purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. The dead works is all the things that we do to try to fix it in ourselves. And what we realize with a text like this is only Jesus can change the heart. And the heart itself cannot be changed. I mean, I think, you know, we naturally kind of think that we're really not that bad. Like, you know, like when you hear the swoon theory, and we kind of laugh at that as believers, we say, you know, anybody heard the swoon theory? You know, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, and therefore, because he didn't die, he was able to, you know, 
resurrect and or revive, resuscitate himself, shows himself, you know, to the disciples, even though he's badly been, you know, bleeded, bleeding and, and bloodied and, you know, lots of injuries, but he, re, he resuscitated because he never really died. And we see that as rubbish, right? I think a lot of Christians have this wound theory about their own theology and their own personal life. What do I mean by that? Is that, do you really think that you were dead dead before you came to Jesus? Or swooned? Like I was, you know, I needed a life rope, but I could respond to God. I could do this. I really wasn't dead in trespasses and sins. I was swooned. I was, I was sick. I needed to be, you know, I need, just need to be revived. And, and because we don't really believe in the deadness part, we don't really have a resurrection part to our life. We kind of show ourselves and we're, you know, resuscitated, but we're really pretty wounded pretty badly still because we, we live like the practical swoon theory because the reality is this. When Paul describes the Christian life, he relates everything back to Jesus in Ephesians. So in Ephesians 1, he talks about the power of God, this, this power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. And then he turns around in chapter two and he says, Jesus wasn't the only one who died. We were dead in trespasses and sins and we followed the prince of the power of the air and we were under that power and we followed the flesh. And then he's saying, Jesus wasn't the only one resurrected. With much love, he quickened us and raised us together with Christ. And Jesus wasn't the only one who ascended. He says, now you're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, made to sit with Christ who's seated above all and we're, we're there with him now. So do we believe that there's been a real and present death, that that's, we were dead and there's been a real and present resurrection? You see, because I think we tend to think that you know, we're more like Jonah than we were like Lazarus. You know, jo Jonah was sinking in the, in the water, he was going down, He'd been, he was in a whale, he, he had big problems, but he wasn't Lazarus, you know, he wasn't dead. No, no, we were dead. And so what R.C. Sproul likes to describe, he says, we were not merely drowning, we had already sunk to the bottom of the sea. And he says, if I understand Paul, I hear him saying that God dives into the water, pulls a dead man from the bottom of the sea, and performs a divine act of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. He breathes into the dead man new life. You see, and we say, well, you know, we think, we think of man seeking God. Sproul just says, we're by nature fugitives. <laughs> so we don't seek God, we're actually fugitives. Fugitives run from God. They seek after the benefits of God, but he doesn't want God, he wants the benefits. And so I think, too, just by way of correction, I think we think, well, if I just pray the prayer and ask Jesus into my life, that'll make all the difference. And I think we need to be careful to recognize decisionism isn't necessarily regeneration at all. And it may not be. Just because you made a decision for Christ when you were nine doesn't mean you were regenerated and that he changed your heart. Are you still following your lust? Are you, you might even be worse than you were before when you were a kid and you prayed that prayer. Because the Bible says, the Ethiopian, can he change his skin or the leopard his spots? How can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good? 
So we can't just ask Jesus into our heart. You have to ask Jesus into your heart and then ask him to get rid of everything else that's in the heart that's idolatrous. That's what giving the new heart actually does is he takes out the old heart and brings in a heart of flesh. And that's what God does in bringing a people to himself. And so now we, we are, if we're in Christ this morning, if you're not, I would encourage you to call upon him to save you from your sin. Because we can't change ourselves. Nothing else can change you. It's already been demonstrated. You can't fix this by external acts. It has to be a change from the inside out. And the only person who knows you and can change you from the inside out is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he will unite himself to you and make you his. And then when he's, now you become one flesh with him. And now he lives in us. And now he's changing us and conforming us to his image. And we're made clean and made whole in him. Find your rest in him this morning. As we come to the table, let me just remind you that this problem is much too great for any of us. But this is exactly what Christ came to do. He came to save sinners from their sin. He came to save his people. And this is what he's come to do. This is his specialty. He is the heart surgeon who can do the heart surgery that's needed. Nobody else can. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are sobering truths. There's so much of our hearts that we don't even know. We don't want to know. Forgive us, Lord, for our trying to fix everything ourselves. Lord, we come to you afresh this day thanking you that you have given your life and your blood on our behalf. Thank you for giving us your righteousness. Thank you for making us not only forgiven, but a justified, accepted people, acquitted forever, only through the work of Jesus. And we give thanks. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.